Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. When I was in college, my life became dominated by what I now, in hindsight, call sticky thoughts. Maybe you've had those. Too little sleep, too much stress, and suddenly I couldn't get certain thoughts out of my mind. Sometimes very small thoughts, sometimes big, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But they would get stuck in my mind, and I would fixate on them. And I couldn't have peace until I did something about them. And it was always the hardest when there were good thoughts. For example, I remember that in a, that period of time, the thought that would come into my mind often would be, you need to share the gospel with that person right now. Now you're going to say, that's a great thought. And you're not wrong. You see, that's why it was so difficult. Because that's a good thought. We should be sharing the gospel with others. But this thought recurred so frequently and left me when I didn't obey it. Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. It happened so often that it made life utterly miserable. Many times I would just do it because I can't stop thinking about it. But not with joy, I just do it because I have to. And other times I wouldn't because it's so life-dominating. I need a break and then I would be left with a sense of guilt. So, to make it more practical, I may be laying in my bed, falling, this did happen, laying in my bed, about to go to sleep in my apartment, and suddenly here comes the dreaded thought. Get up, go downstairs right now, knock on the door, meet the stranger, share the gospel. <laughs> Which again, you can't say that's bad. Driving on the bus, share the gospel right now with that person, do it. Walking. There's a person sitting there. Share the gospel now. And for me, I couldn't understand. Is this the Holy Spirit? And if I don't obey, I'm quenching the Spirit of God? Life was very terrible with these kinds of sticky thoughts. And for some of you, you've never experienced it. This is the oddest thing you've ever heard. That's fine. Ignore it. Others of you, you I know that you have experienced this sort of a thing. This is a good, good thing. Share the gospel. That's good. But the way it was operating in my mind was not healthy. <laughs> but it was so hard to deal with because it was good. No one's going to say, well, just don't share the gospel. <laughs> so what do you do with that? Actually, the most helpful piece of advice I got, which didn't fix the problem because that's how good advice often goes in our life, but it was the best piece of advice I got in hindsight, was someone who knew this issue told me, do you think that God wants your life to be miserable. Ultimately, that was the sort of thought that freed me from the misery of that season, and I still share the gospel, as we should, but that freed me from the pounding misery of those impulses, share, 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 was stepping back from it and thinking on a bigger level, what sort of a life does God intend for his children? I'm not talking about circumstances outwardly because many of God's children have had very miserable circumstances, have died, have suffered, have been persecuted, martyred in the Colosseum and throughout history. So 
it's within God's will that we, his children, suffer. And often from this pulpit, you'll hear me talking about how difficult externally the Christian life is. And I'll keep talking about that, not to depress anyone, but because I don't want you to be disillusioned by an unrealistic picture of the Christian life. It's hard. I'm not unsaying any of that. However, when it comes within yourself, your own thoughts, your own heart, as you encounter the trials of life, does God intend that your life overall be one where internally you are miserable, fearful, anxious, conflicted, terrified, burdened, crushed? Now, some of you feel this way, right? But what I'm asking is, is that what God wants for you if you are in Christ? The answer is no. That is not what God wants. God may want some very crushing circumstances to help grow you. And God may not take you out of that. So that, God might want that for you. But I'm talking about inside yourself as you endure that circumstance. Does God want you utterly miserable always? And the answer is no. Paul, to the churches he had planted when he visited them later, said to each of them, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. But do you know what that same verse says? He strengthened the souls of the brothers. <laughs> he wasn't trying to crush them. He was saying, life's hard, but let me strengthen your soul. Inwardly, you don't have to be miserable. It's not God's intention for you to be that way. And it's not just that God doesn't want you to be miserable. It's that God absolutely forbids it. And if you don't believe that, then here's the passage that will tell you that very thing. God wants you to have what we call the peace of God. Internally, the peace of God. Let me show you that here in our text. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. <laughs> Maybe you missed that, so. Again, I will say, rejoice let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In this passage of scripture, you have given to you three of the very, oh, goodbye. <laughs> Bring us back. <laughs> Did we lose? Oh, there we are. Thank you. Thanks. Keeping us awake. That's good. In this passage of scripture, you're going to receive three of the very best commands that you've ever received. And probably for almost everyone in here, they're things you want to do. Do you want to be joyful? Or do you not, do you not want to be joyful? <laughs> you don't want that? If you want to be joyful, well, here's the command of Scripture. Be joyful. Rejoice. Do you want to be utterly unreasonable? Is that what you want? Well, then be reasonable and let it be known to everyone. And do you want to be racked with worries about life? Well, then how about don't 
be that way. Don't be anxious. You're receiving in this passage, it's kind of like commanding the child to eat candy. <laughs> you have to eat the candy. Are you such a cruel parent? No, that's a wonderful command. Or the person who's wandered through the desert, they're parched, they're dying of thirst, and you bring the water and you command them to drink the water. So it is, this passage is a series of commands, three of them to be specifically, but they are wonderful commands. They're everything you really want, but in a world like ours, they're not everything we do, and therefore we need the command once again. Really, this passage is describing for you internally, the sort of internal life that God wants for his children. Notice it's not, be miserable, utterly despise yourself, go in the dust, suffer, 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 be crushed. <laughs> it's not that way in this text. Notice it's God's desire for you internally is to be joyful, to be reasonable or gentle, and here, not to be anxious. So we're going to break this sermon into those three parts, those three commands given in our text. The first is that you be joyful. The second says gentleness, but we'll see the word has to do maybe with kindness. Be joyful, be kind, and the third, be calm. You want that? I want that. You want that. Okay. Let's look at those here in our text, and let's start with the first command that's given to you. What sort of person should you be within yourself? Number one, you, Christian, need to be joyful. Look at the verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, I was tempted right here to give us this heading, be happy, because that is attention grabbing. However, most of you are aware that when the Bible uses the word joy, it's not identical with our word happy. There's overlap, but there's significant difference with the ways those terms are used. Here's what I mean. If the command was be happy, happy is something that can be light and frivolous. It can be like a wisp of air. So, for example, think of the young woman, she's in college, she's at yet another frat party, and she's slightly intoxicated, and there's smoke, and there's noise, and there's lights. She can, and maybe does, feel very happy. But we would not say that she has joy. What she has is a positive feeling. So, on the surface, it's going to look like joy, smiling face, smiling face. But we know it's not joy because, biblically speaking, joy is like happiness, but it's something that's rooted much deeper. It doesn't just disappear when the night's over and you wake up in the morning hungover, feeling bad and regretting your decisions. That's what happiness can be. It goes away. Poof, it's gone. But biblically, joy is not like that. Joy is not something you have and it's gone and you have and it's gone. That's not Joy. Joy has an enduring nature to it. It has a permanence. It looks like happiness. Sometimes it feels like happiness, but it's rooted much, 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 much deeper. A person who's having an affair can and will feel some happiness, but they will not feel joy. A person who's embezzling funds from work so they can go on a nice cruise will feel some happiness on that cruise, and they'll come back and get arrested, and they won't have any more happiness it's not joy. We're not saying that those give you joy. They give you something or you wouldn't do them. 
but they're not giving you joy in a biblical sense. This is the nature of joy. It's deeper. Joy has roots which go down into the ground and take hold of the soil so that your joy is not so easily plucked out. Happiness dies as soon as the party's over. Happiness dies when the cruise ends. Happiness dies when you're caught in the affair. Happiness dies when trouble comes, when your circumstances change. But when trouble comes and circumstances change for the Christian, your joy doesn't die. That's how you know it's joy. Deeply rooted, more profound. If you want proof of this in the scriptures, just think about how often in the Bible we are commanded to or described as having joy in circumstances that would kill happiness. We saw it earlier in Philippians, if you remember, Paul said to the Philippians, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, meaning I might have my head cut off. And he says, even if that happens, you're not going to be happy about that. Even if that happens, Paul said, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. And he said, I want you to rejoice with me. You see, that's not a circumstance for happiness, okay? Rome might kill Paul, but he says, can't kill my joy. I rejoice. Or think again about Jesus' very surprising beatitude, the last one that he gave. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Your happiness dies. <laughs> and he says this, if that happens, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. There's the root. Reward in heaven. That plant is holding on to that promise. That's why it's still alive. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. The thing with happiness is happiness doesn't have any roots. So when the sun of affliction arises, to borrow Jesus' metaphor, happiness just withers and dies. Happiness survives as long as your circumstances are happy. Then you feel happy. But when the sun of affliction arises, happiness is out of here. See ya. And it's gone. And now you're sad. And now you're troubled. And now you're anxious. And now you're left with regret and remorse. It's all gone because now your life's hard. But when Paul commands you to rejoice, that is to have joy, he's commanding you to a deeper sort of happiness. Joy is rooted in the promises of God. This is why... Joy has a permanence to it. Christian joy, you living the sort of life that obeys this double command to rejoice, rejoice, does not require, and I repeat, just because Paul repeated, so I'm going to repeat it, okay? I repeat, it does not require the hard things in your life to go away. Listen, I'm your friend. I want the hard things in your life to go away, okay? But you can have joy even if they don't. I know this for a fact just from Jesus' own words. You remember when Jesus' disciples had been sent out by him to go preach the kingdom, he gave them power to do amazing things, heal, cast out demons. So this was remarkable ministry success for these young disciples, and they were excited. They had a happiness about casting out demons, because who can do that? When they came back to Jesus, he said, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. Because that could change, you know. Don't, don't rejoice in that. But rejoice in this. 
Rejoice that your names are written in heaven, like we saw last week. Your names written in heaven. That is a fact for the Christian. Anyone, he says, rejoice in in the Lord, in Christ here. Rejoice in the Lord always. You're in the Lord. You're in Christ Jesus if you're a believer. And that means your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And that book doesn't come down here. Nobody can go in there and smudge it. Nobody can tear out pages. It is up in heaven. The promise for you as a Christian is a happy ending. Is life everlasting in paradise with a perfect Savior in union with God. And there's nothing that can happen on earth to change that. Now you can see why joy, if that's what its roots are holding on to, doesn't die when life gets hard. Happiness is holding on to the nice circumstance. And when that goes, but your Christian joy is not. Your joy is holding on to God's promise that he will keep you safe to the end and give you a life everlasting. A miscarriage may and likely will shake you to your core, but it does not touch the Lamb's book of life in which your name is written and your deceased little one, their name is written in there. That doesn't change. You run out of money and you look in your bank account and it's not only empty, it's overdrafted, it's overdrawn, and now you don't know where the money's going to come from. At that moment, your joy's still alive. Because your joy is not holding on to your bank account. What's it holding on to? The Lamb's book of life. And that, it's fine. It has not been altered. As Peter said, you have an inheritance and it's reserved in heaven for you. No rust, no thieves. That is the foundation of your hope. This is really why in our passage today, he can say, rejoice in the Lord always. Many of us can obey this command up to that word, (laughs) rejoice in the Lord. And I mean, on a good sunny day, who wouldn't? But it's that always that is the challenge. But the reason the always is there is because those roots, they hold on to something deep and profound. So always means rejoice in the Lord. When you've had a wonderful Sunday morning, your relationships are going pretty well, you go to lunch or you go home, have a lunch, and it's just a delicious lunch. It's one of your favorites and it's so good and you're digesting it and relaxing on the couch and thinking about the goodness of God. Financially, you're doing okay. You've got hopes for the future here. Your family's all in harmony. And at that time, always rejoice in the Lord, okay? So don't be like, is it all going to go away? No, rejoice in the Lord at that time, deep joy. And when the opposite of everything I've said is true in your life, and you've got a rebellious teenager who's living risky, and you know the pain that's coming, and you can't stop them. You've got other conflicts happening with close friends, and they don't really want to talk to you, or it's just awkward right now. You've got very little money. You're out of a job. You were let go. You don't know where your next job's going to come from. You've got kids to feed. When that's happening, your happiness would have died. Rejoice in the Lord then. And you might respond and object in your own circumstance right now and say, well, easy for you to say, you don't know what I'm going through. Okay, but listen, God built in a response to your objection. You see that in the text? So he says, rejoice in the Lord always, you say, but not with what I'm going through. 
So then Paul says, let me respond to that. Again, I will say to you, <laughs> rejoice when you encounter fiery trials, Scripture says. Rejoice. That's very odd. It is very odd. Because most people are used to happiness. You don't feel happy when you encounter trials. But you're a Christian. You have more than happiness. You have joy. And that survives. And that rejoicing, of course, is in the Lord. It's, this isn't just a blind optimism like eh, everything might work out. This is if you're in the Lord. If you've trusted in Christ and the work that he's done upon the cross for your soul, then you're secure. Then your name's written in heaven. Then your roots go deep. Then your joy endures and your joy survives. And this joy survives when there are tears in your eyes. This isn't like a happy-go-lucky feeling all the time. We see it in Paul. You remember, he was in Asia, burdened beyond his strength, despaired of life itself. Paul was the one who said of himself and his co-workers, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How do you be sorrowful and rejoicing at the same time? You can't be sad and happy at the same time, but joy is deeper than that. And you can feel sad, sorrowful, and have an undergirding of joy even in your sorrow. It's like rebar in the concrete. So when the earthquake comes, the concrete doesn't break. It shakes, but it doesn't break because it's girded with something firm and strong within it. That's your joy. You'll shake, but you won't break because you have joy to bring you through the trial rooted in the promises of God. So do you want to be miserable? Do you want to do that? No, you don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Listen, here's the first way God describes what your inner life should be in, in every circumstance. You should be the sort of person who is joyful. So be joyful. This takes us to our next command in the text, which is in the next verse here. And it is, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It's not uncommon for Paul to end a letter, he does it to the Thessalonians as well, with a sort of staccato of commands, one after another, after another, after another. And that's what he's doing here. So he said, rejoice. Then he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That word reasonableness in the ESV is a little bit tough to pin down. In English, actually, many times when that same Greek word is used somewhere else in the New Testament, maybe every time, most of the time, it's not reasonableness. It's usually translated gentle or gentleness. So 1 Timothy 3.3 says that an elder has to not be violent, but gentle, same word, not quarrelsome. Titus is supposed to tell his flock to speak evil of no one, Avoid quarreling and be gentle, reasonable, gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And James says that the wisdom that comes from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, same word, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And most importantly of all, Paul speaks of the meekness and gentleness, reasonableness of Christ. So it's a trait that we share with Jesus himself. I hope that you could see in that brief spattering of passages that use this word reasonableness, 
how the full description given in each of those cases portrays a person who is kind. Not quarrelsome, not violent, not domineering, but reasonable, calm here, but kind. And I think for our purposes, that's probably a very good way to take this word. You can say reasonable, you can say gentle, but it has to do with our interactions with others, and especially when you want to be mean, (laughs) so you're provoked. And don't be provoked, don't be quarrelsome. So what should you be instead? Be kind. So we'll take that as the summary of the second command here. The first was be joyful, and the second is be kind. Now this be kind is not a sort of soft, passive, limp-wristed kindness. And we know this because Paul had spoken of the gentleness or kindness of Christ. And Christ, as we all know, could take a table out in public and flip it. (laughs) Take his whip, his cord, and go and drive people in anger. He wasn't, please get out. (laughs) He was very angry that his liege, his God, his Lord, had been offended by the greed of those who were misusing the temple. And he wasn't afraid to tell them. And there are many times Jesus spoke very bluntly and directly, especially against the religious leaders. So whatever gentleness means here, I'm not trying to argue some kind of limp-wristed, don't offend anybody, don't ever say hard things. That's no good. It's not what it means. But it means something, you understand? It means don't be quick to enter a conflict. It means before you're going to enter into some heated disagreement or conflict, you need to step back and reasonably think, is this worth me entering into a conflict over? Jesus was willing to enter a conflict over significant doctrine, over the glory of God. But when they tried to bring about a conflict, for example, with, uh, well, for him it was politics. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus didn't get angry. He did, that they were trying to trick him. But instead he said, give to Caesar what's Caesar. Give to God what's God's. That wasn't what fueled Jesus. Jesus was angry when God was dishonored, when people were taken advantage of. But the general nature of Christ as it was demonstrated when he touches the leper, when he heals the person, when he listens, when he interacts, when he's with the crowds all day, all night, next morning, is that he's kind. Tax collectors and prostitutes want to sit at his table. You don't do that if it's some vicious, slanderous, horrible person. There's a gentleness about Jesus, even if at times he can be very firm. What practically does this look like? Oh, well, there's so much you could get into, I'm sure. But listen, do you want for your life to hate half of everyone in your country over the question of whether or not they think it's a good idea to wear a mask? I said it. I don't regret it. I'm sorry. Listen, and I don't care what side you take. I really don't on that that whole question. But look, half the country disagrees with you, okay? And included in that half of the country is probably half of Christians or thereabouts. You should have an opinion on that. Again, you don't have to be limp-wristed. Have an opinion. It's a democracy. Think about this. Vote. Make your argument. That's wonderful. You can make arguments in kindness. 
And there's a way to make arguments not in kindness, and you know what that way is. Be kind. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. When people look at you in person, on social media, wherever, when they look at you, do they think, this is a very reasonable person. This person's gentle. This person's kind. When it comes to doctrine, when it comes to the glory of God, when it comes to the most central significant things, when it comes to people threatening loved ones, then this person can be fierce. <laughs> but as a general rule, just like with Jesus, this person's reasonable. This person's kind. And when it comes to matters of wisdom, where it's not absolutely clear, but matters of wisdom, then this person can be talked with about it, can be persuaded if necessary or not, but this person is kind. Sometimes what we do is we take matters of wisdom, which may be very important, and masks would be an example, and there are many, many others you can think of. These are things that matter. It's not like they don't matter, but we take one of those, and then we sometimes see ourselves as if we were Augustine or Calvin or Luther or Spurgeon fighting against heresies coming into the church. The thing is, they were fighting against heresies coming into the church. That seems patently clear to me. I mean, literally heresies, literally denials of the resurrection, denial of Jesus Christ, denial of the Trinity. None of them were fighting against masks. I know it's a different context. If you take every matter of wisdom and try to elevate it up to a cause you must fight for to the end, then you can't be kind. Do you see that? How will anyone ever think of you as gentle? Surely there are some matters in life that we can calmly, reasonably discuss. Some we shan't. Some we will not. Someone denies the Trinity boldly in here, then we elders will boldly kick them right out. <laughs> it's not a nice, calm discussion. So that's heresy, you understand. Even second-level doctrinal issues we can deal with more fervently, but when it comes to other matters, which makes up most of the Christian life, which are applications of biblical principles in wisdom, have an opinion, but be nice, be kind, maybe I should use that word, be reasonable as this scripture commands. We really have to be, honestly, what C.S. Lewis once described, and this was in the context of World War II, where the European world had to fight against the evils of Hitler and had to do it very ferociously to survive. And they did. But then as Englanders come back to their native country, what do you do? You've just been killing people. How do you settle back into peacetime? And Lewis's argument was that people in England would need to learn the chivalry of the medieval world. Chivalry guided knights and in its purest form, the idea was here's a knight of the round table sitting beside King Arthur. And when you get that knight out on the battlefield, you don't want to see him. <laughs> He's fierce. No mercy. Fight to the death, protecting his liege, protecting his lady, protecting his lands. He goes, he fights. But take that same knight after the battle back in court. And here is a gentle lady walking through and there's some mud on the ground. And he is, of course, going to remove his coat and put it on the mud and let her walk over. He's gentle as a rose. It's like, is this the same person? Yes in different contexts. This is what scripture calls you to be. Don't be blowing up all the time. Don't think everything's a battlefield, but know that something is. 
Heresy is a battlefield. Doctrinal error is a battlefield we have to fight against. But then when we're in court, when we're dealing with genuine believers and talking about matters of wisdom, we're gentle, reasonable, kind. And our text says, in a way that everyone will know about it. Not so you can boast about it, but just because this should so characterize your life that it's obvious to everyone that you're a kind person. So be kind. Some people in culture, even if you're as kind as possible, holding some of the doctrinal views that you hold about human sexuality or abortion or whatever it may be, some people will assume that you are a vicious, evil person, not because you are, but because of the views that you hold that are biblical. We're not talking about that. You have to keep holding that. So if, if they don't think you're reasonable, that's not really your problem. That's more on them. But most of life is not about those issues. Most of life's about other things, and in those, be kind. Notice here that he throws a statement in, in this same verse, and he doesn't attach it in any way. The statement is, the Lord is near. He doesn't attach it. There's no and, there's no for, for the Lord is near, because the Lord is near, it doesn't have it. So we just have to figure out, why does he put that right there? How does it attach to what came after or before? So Paul saying the Lord is near could, and this is how the ESV kind of puts the punctuation, if you notice, could be pointing forward to be calm in the next verse. It could also be supporting this command to be kind. So let's take it that way. It's probably a little of both. Be kind. Why? Because it's not always easy. Here's one reason. The Lord is near. Brothers and sisters, James commands you also to be kind to Christians and not to speak against them because, quote, the judge is standing at the door. The end of all things is at hand. The day is drawing near. Salvation's nearer to us now than when we first believed. Why should you restrain yourself from blurting out your bitterness towards someone who frustrates you and whose thinking is utterly foreign to yours? This is one reason. The Lord is near. Think of him as just standing right there by that door, Jesus, and he's looking in. <laughs> you're walking down the hallway or you're at home and you're interacting with a Christian and you want to just go off on them and you need to look at the nearest door <laughs> and just imagine Jesus, he's looking, he's near, he's ready to return. Not only is he near in that he sees you, but he's near because he's going to return very soon. You don't want to be seen by Jesus mistreating his bride when he returns for her. I promise you don't want to be seen doing that. So don't. Be kind. This brings us then to our last point. The last command of the three. You need to be a joyful person, not a miserable one. You need to be a kind person, not a wrathful, explosive one. Lastly, you need to be a calm person instead of a worrisome one or one who's filled with worry. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here is the happiest and the hardest command you will ever receive from the Bible. Do not be anxious about anything. This is the very command that Jesus gave to us. Do not be anxious, he said, about your life, and don't be anxious about your body. 
Don't worry about what you'll eat or drink. Don't worry about your clothes. And Jesus said, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Some of us would probably be benefited to invest in a parrot and teach the parrot just to say this verse, do not be anxious about anything and just keep it with you and let it say that to you all day. Because you're hearing this now, but you know you're going to leave and as, literally as you're driving, and I know this because during Sunday school, I was worried. <laughs> I thought I can't do that. I have to preach on this. So as you're driving home, you're going to feel worry, thoughts of worry again about what if and what if this, the future and financially and or to save on cage and care for the parrot, you could just memorize the verse and just say it to yourself frequently. Do not be anxious about anything. One quick note on this. Some people, when they hear that, go, that's very nice, but does that mean we're just supposed to be kind of like, I can say it, I'm from Southern California, the old Southern California hippie, and everything's cool, everything's chill, dude. There's no problems. Like, even if there are problems, there's no problems, but it's just a sort of oblivious to problems. Is that what this is calling you to? Like, just don't care, you know? Just stop caring about stuff, and you'll be fine. Sort of the stoic approach to life. No. <laughs> no. Actually, when we hear Paul say, don't be anxious about anything, we do need to caveat it because Paul himself does. You probably thought of the verse, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, 28, where Paul says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Same word. Wait a minute, Paul. You said, don't be anxious about anything, but he feels an anxiety for the churches. Actually, in Philippians it's, itself, Paul said of Timothy, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned. That's the same word for anxiety. <laughs> who will be genuinely anxious, concerned for your welfare. So we need to right now, for the sake of the clarity of your thought, separate out two things. There's a category of things that you can feel concerned for, even a mild distress about. And then there's a category of things, the larger one, that you need to just stop worrying about. The category of things that you should feel some concern for within reasonable limits, particularly is the glory of God and the good of others. So, Jesus flips the tables. He's concerned about what's happening because the glory of God is at stake. Or the religious leaders are mistreating the people. Jesus is concerned about that. He thinks and feels about that. He's not super chill. He feels about that. You can as well. Just don't let it get carried away. Don't let it be dominating. But listen, 90% or more of what you worry about is not about the spiritual welfare of other people. Sorry. Most of what you and I worry about is in this other large category. And Jesus described it this way. Don't be worried about your life, what you eat or drink, or your body, what you wear, or tomorrow. The needs of life. The day-to-day -day happenings, you losing or keeping your job, your children perfectly obeying you in every circumstance, you being embarrassed when they don't. There are worries that just come from this life. There are worries also that just stem from our sin. You want everyone to like you. You're worried that they won't. You want an easy life. You're worried about your in-laws making it complicated. Those things this passage is speaking about, and it says, listen, just stop. Don't do that. That's, that's not right. 
You need to be calm. Don't be anxious about those things. One commentator said, this is calling you to be carefree, not uncaring. Care about people, but don't worry about all of the rest. Stop wasting your mental energies on that. You might say, this is impossible. You don't know the sort of person I am. Well, he gives you the way to do it. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's not don't do anything about your problems. It's do this about your problems that you can't control. Bring them to God in thankful prayer. Listen, do you want a joyful life? It's not, I'm not just saying you can have a joyful life. I'm telling you God literally commands you to have a joyful life. Do you want to be kind and not explosive? God commands you to be that kind of a person. Do you want to be calm instead of racked with fears? God commands you to be that sort of person. And he appends this promise that if you do, the peace of God, which is beyond anything you can imagine, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for being benevolent and good. Thank you for not wanting our lives within ourselves to be utter misery. But even in a very broken, distorted, odd sort of world like this, thank you that in your goodness through Christ and his work for us, you make possible and command that we would be joyful people, calm and not worried, kind and not furious. So I pray that you would help us to eat the candy you are commanding us to eat, to obey these commands that are for our good always. Please help us to put to death that sinful part of us that wants to be miserable, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, to obey this that you may exalt us into a joyful life. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.